Hi, everybody. I'm Peggy. Hi, Peggy. It's because the program of Al-Anon works, and I choose to work the 12 steps in my life on a daily basis that I've been restored to sanity one day at a time. So far, that journey has taken uh, almost 11 years. be 11 years, June 9th. So <clears throat> it's been a long journey at times. It's been a happy journey, and at times it's been a sad one. But through it all, I've had you. A um, couple of things I want to tell you before I get started. Because, see, I, a while ago, I already asked God to do this thing. So when he kicks in, I'm through. <laughs> so I do want to say something this morning before he starts. And that is that I'm grateful to be here. Uh, this is some of the prettiest country we've been in. We've been all over, but it is just lovely up here. So I do thank you for asking us and allowing us to come and share. The other thing is, I am a member in good standing of the Horn Lake group in Horn Lake, Mississippi. I always get through before I tell you that, and I'm sure people all over this country wonder if I still go to Alamo. And I do. I go there regularly. Um, I'm currently treasurer of our group. And uh, on Saturday night, I chair a uh, study from the Survival to Recovery book. And I have someone uh, doing that for me tonight while I can, so I can be here. Um, I'm not really too involved in service work at this point. I was at one time, and I got out of it. And so I decided recently I would uh, get involved again. We've got a convention coming up in the state of Tennessee, <clears throat> and that's the district we're affiliated with. The 98 convention will be held in Memphis, and so I volunteered to be speaker chairman since I knew a lot of speakers all over the country. I figured I had a good in with them, and uh, I went to my first meeting the other day for for that uh, convention committee and was there for two hours, and when I left, I knew why, why I got out of service work. <laughs> Total disorganization drives me nuts. Something else I want to say before God starts. Um, I've done a lot of observing since I've been here the last 24 hours. And I've, I've met a lot of drunks. And in so doing, I know that there's always someone that's connected with that drunk that feels just like I felt at one time. Very lonely. Uh, a lot of other things, but I'll leave it alone for now. But when I'm, and I've known Sterling for some time, but to hear him again last night was just wonderful, and, and I always love to hear Sterling. But, you know, when you see the likes of a Jerry L. walk in here, and we've got a few others along the way here, and, you know, I always know that, that there's a spouse that has felt the loneliness that I felt at one time. And I'm going to tell you how I cured that. Because I was so lonely and he was drinking so much and I didn't know where he was and when he'd be home. Then when he got home, he was so, sometimes he was nice and most times he wasn't. And uh, I decided I'd get me a pet. That that would be the cure for loneliness for me. Uh, so I went to the pet store. And I talk, told the man that I wanted a pet that would... Love me every time he saw me walk in the door that that pet would just be so glad I was home and just, you know, just love me every minute of every day, no matter what I did. He said, I got the very thing for you, Piggy. I said, okay. He said, come back here with me. So we go in the back room. 
And back there in the dark corner, up on a pedestal, sits this little black furry thing. And I looked at it, and I said, what is that? And he said, that's a woolly booger. And I said, a woolly booger? He said, yeah. I said, well, what's that? He said, well, uh, it would be better if I show you what it is rather than I tell you what it is. Okay, so he goes over to the little woolly booger and he says, Hey, you, get on off that pedestal and woody booger that table down there. Well, that little thing jumped down and trotted over there and it got a hold of this table and it chewed it all up in a million pieces and spit it out all over everywhere. So, whoa, I'm impressed. He said, Well, would you like to see it again? I said, Yeah. So he says, Hey, you, get on off of that pedestal and Woolly booger that pedestal you're on. That little thing jumped down, he grabbed that pedestal, and he just chewed it all up and spit it out in a million pieces. All over everywhere. Man, I like that. I'm impressed. He said, well, now i got to tell you one thing about it. He said, it only takes commands from a male voice. Eh, not a problem. So I took it home. I set it up on a pedestal in the dining room near the back door and old Mr. Wonderful walked in just drunker than a skunk and he turned around and he looked at that thing over the corner and he said what's that I said that's a woolly booger he said woolly booger my ass In Mississippi, we call that sweet Al-Anon revenge. <laughs> Excuse me, pre-Al-Anon revenge. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I'm a country girl. And I know I don't look like it today, and I thank God for that. <clears throat> but before this thing's over, the way my toes hurt, and I may have my shoes off, and I hope that that doesn't bother you. But I'm a country girl, born and raised in the, in southeast Arkansas, where they raise rice, soybeans, uh, cotton, and mosquitoes as big as helicopters. Now, you probably don't even know what they are up here. I hope not, but we got them down there, and I promised God a long time ago, if he ever let me get out of there, I wouldn't go back. And I don't very often, especially when those things are in season. I came from a uh, what I would consider, I guess, today to be a normal family. Everybody was normal in it except me. I'm, boy, what's his name's counterpart over here. <laughs> I could so much relate to him last night when he was talking about a dysfunctional family. I wanted to call mine one, too. And they, they wouldn't let me get by with it. I have two younger sisters, and uh, my father was a farmer. My mother didn't work except she did help out on the farm. So I learned how to work at an early age. I, you know, we helped out on the farm. We had to. There wasn't any boys. God didn't bless me with any brothers. So it was all up to us five to take care of that farm, and we did. And my father was also a rural mail carrier until he retired some 10, 12 years ago. But we had everything that we needed, not everything we wanted, but we had everything we needed. And they were good to us. Our life revolved around a little Baptist church out in the country. 
And everything we did revolved around that little church. We were there when the doors opened on Sunday, Sunday night and Wednesday night. And we had one thing that was all, that I always looked forward to during the summer and that was the singing school where we had an instructor that came from 90 miles away and, and taught us all how to sing, uh, by shape notes, to recognize and read shape notes. And, uh, so I grew up loving gospel music and I'm talking about gospel music now I'm not talking about what they call sacred music I'm talking about gospel music where you know the hand clapping foot stomping um shouting hallelujah kind of music that just turns me on I get revved up like a, you just don't even know how I can get revved up with that and it was a big part of my life because during one of those singing schools one year the instructor picked out three people at the end of the school to form a trio to do some special singing and unbeknownst to him at the time, those three people were me and my two sisters. And so we traveled and sang for several years in that area, singing gospel music. So it's just always been a part of my life. And still is a part of my life. Only I don't sing anymore, I just listen. But I'd go, I'd go anywhere to hear a good gospel singing. Just, to me it's wonderful. But that was the good part of my life. The other part of my life was, was my dad. Now, he just never did act right. He never did uh, meet my expectations. Never. And the reason for that was because I had three little girlfriends that lived down this dirt road about a mile, and they had a daddy that I thought was what every daddy in the world should be like. Now, I'm going to describe him to you. He was a big, robust man. He never worked a day in his life, I don't guess, but it didn't matter to me because every time I went to see my girlfriends, Mr. John, their dad, would always pick me up and swirl me around and tell me how pretty I was and made me feel like a little princess. And I thought that was wonderful. I just ate it up. But the bad thing about it was I'd go back home and I expected my father to treat me the same. He never did. My father was not affectionate. Didn't matter to me. I thought he ought to be. Especially to me. But he just never did it. When I was very, very young, and I really don't know how old I was, but I'm assuming somewhere around five or six, I was sitting in the living room floor one Saturday night, and the thought just came across my mind to, that well, maybe I could just get up in his lap. So I went over to the recliner and started to get up in his lap, and he pushed me away. And for the first time in my life, I felt rejection, but it was not to be the last. I married when I was very young. Well, I tell you what, let me let me back up a little bit. I found love in the back seat of a '57 Ford. <laughs> now y'all all laugh, so I know I'm not alone. <laughs> Somebody else found it there, too. <clears throat> but somehow that got all mixed up in my head as being love when, in fact, it was lust. But when you're raised like I was raised, you've got to cover your sins some kind of way. And the only, kind, only way you can cover that one is to marry. So I married him. About uh, 13 months later, we had a little girl. And... <clears throat> All during this, all during my high school years and, and all during uh, this marriage, 
I began to develop this hole in my gut. It's the only way I've ever been able to describe it. But it was just a giant hole in my gut that no matter where I was, I wanted to be somewhere else. No matter uh, what I was doing, I wanted to be doing something else. If I was sitting, I wanted to be standing. If, and, you know, I, I just, I was so confused about what was going on with me at the time that <clears throat> I thought that this marriage was just, you know, it just wasn't for me. I, I just got, left a lot of things out of my childhood and it, that I needed to go back and get. It's the only way I know how to describe it. I just, you know, there was just something I needed to make up. I, I understand today what was going on, but at that time I didn't. And so <clears throat> no one in my family had ever had a divorce. No one. And um, so I decided, well, I need to get a divorce. I can't just go around and mess around on him. You know, that was against every traditional religious value that I'd ever been taught. So... <clears throat> I provoked him a little. He slapped me around a bit. And I had perfect justification for a divorce. And I got one. Prior to that, though, I had to get rid of that daughter. And I don't tell you this bragging about it or boasting about it, certainly, but it's a very painful part of my story. But but I did it, and, and i got to tell you about it. I had to get rid of that little girl. She was in my way of doing what I wanted to do. The grass was greener on the other side, and I wanted to go to the other side. It was her first day of school, and I took her to, <clears throat> to school in Little Rock that day. <clears throat> she had a black teacher. Now, this was back during the time when um, segregation, uh, they'd had the big thing over there with the National Guard, if you remember, in Little Rock, and <clears throat> those people were still pretty sensitive about that, and I really didn't have any feelings one way or the other about it. I truly didn't. But I knew my family did. And when I took my daughter to school that day, she had a black teacher, and I knew I had exactly what I needed. I called up my sister, who could qualify for this program probably as best, as good as I do. And I told her about <clears throat> Angie having a black teacher, and she said, well, you just bring her on down here. We'll put her in school down here, and that's all I needed to hear. So I took her to my sister, and she lived there for the next eight years. <clears throat> in that small town where we had grown up. <clears throat> so now that I was rid of the daughter and now that I was rid of the husband, I was off and running trying to fill this hole in my gut. Now, before I go any further, I'm going to tell you this. There's probably a lot of you out there that wondering and thinking, I thought this was an alimony meeting. <laughs> <laughs> And I'm here to tell you that had alcohol done for me what it did for some of you, I would be uh, this morning's speaker and not this afternoon's speaker. <laughs> but it didn't do for me what it did for you. It made me feel out of control, and I never like to be out of control of nothing, especially myself. And when I drank... My tongue got loose at both ends, and I became everything that I hated. And certainly I was not a lady. So I set out on a course to fill this hole in my gut. And I tried everything from booze to men to jobs to cars to clothes to what have you. Never tried any drugs. Never did that. There wasn't really too much of it, I don't think, back at the t that time. 
And I went on a crash course from Little Rock to Dallas, back to Little Rock, to eventually ended up in Forest City, Arkansas, and I'd lost my job. And I had nowhere to go except back home, and I wasn't going to do that because I wasn't welcome. I could go back to Little Rock. I didn't have any friends there. I had done, you know, just used all of them. The only other choice I felt I had was to go to Memphis, Tennessee, which was 40 miles away. I'd never been to Memphis, Tennessee, but one time in my life, and that was to an exhibition football game between the New York uh, Pat- the New York Jets and the New England Patriots, I think. Wasn't that right? <clears throat> We've since talked about this. I didn't go there to see my future husband. I went to see Joe Namath. <laughs> that ought to get the ego in place for tonight, don't you think? <laughs> But I'd never been there, but I've always been a gambler of sorts with everything except my money. And I decided that I'd just go to Memphis. I didn't have anything to lose, didn't have a job, but I could surely get one I always had. So I went to Memphis with barely enough money in my pocket to pay down on an apartment, turn the utilities home, and I found an apartment. <clears throat> the apartment manager was this little bitty old lady named Shorty. She's about this tall. And she rented me an apartment, and I still don't know why to this day, except that God was in it because I didn't have a job, and they don't rent apartments to Memphis, in Memphis to people that don't have jobs. But I didn't have one. I guess I looked like I had potential, maybe. She rented me this apartment, and I didn't have anything to do every day, so I made a pot of coffee and go sit and talk to Shorty all day down at the office. And I was very attracted to Shorty because she had something I wanted, and that something was peace. I know today it was peace, peace of mind. But when she talked of the God of her understanding, her face glowed like a light bulb. And she had been in some sordid places with some pretty shady characters. And when she told me all of that, and she told me what happened to her and how things were with her today, I was really impressed, and I was so attracted to her, and I couldn't get enough of it. I'd go back every day to hear what Shorty had to tell me. One day I left there on a Thursday in September of 75, and I knew that I was going to have to do one of two things. I was going to have to fill this hole in my gut with something, or I was going to have to jump off of that big M bridge over there, because I could not take it anymore. I was miserable. So I went home, it was a townhouse, I went upstairs, went in the bathroom upstairs, closed the door, put the lid down, crossed my arms, and put my head down. And for the very first time in my life, I said a sincere prayer and made a plea to the God that I didn't understand. And I wasn't sure he existed, but I made a plea. I said, God, I don't know what that lady's got. Talking about Shorty. But whatever it is, I want some of it. And with that, it was like a lightning bolt hit me in the top of my head and went all the way through my body. And it electrifies me today when I just even think about it. It was so one, such a wonderful experience. I didn't know what had happened. I had no idea. But I can tell you one thing. I know the experience Bill Wilson had that we read about. Because I had the same one. And it was wonderful. I couldn't wait to go back and tell Shorty what had happened. She was excited. She didn't tell me what happened. 
but it was she thought it was wonderful. Well, she uh, introduced me to some more young people that were my same age, and they thought it was wonderful, and so they all invited me to go to church with them, and so I did. <clears throat> now, that was a new experience, because I told you I was raised in a Baptist church, and, and it was a very... Um, I mean, these, this Baptist church that I grew up in, you know, it was a very quiet Baptist church. They didn't shout or nothing. And I walked into this Pentecostal church, I'm going to tell you, my eyes came open. Oh, buddy, that was a different experience altogether. But it was, there were some good things about it. You see, God brought me all this way and showed me all these things when he brought me to this church. And there was two things I loved about that church. And number one was their singing. You know that because you know they got good singing. I loved it. They even let me join their choir and I loved that. Learned how to play a tambourine and I could play that sucker and I still can. <laughs> <clears throat> they just don't let me do it in Alan I need. <laughs> the other thing I liked about their church was the, the God they understood to be a gimme God. Now, boy, I want to tell you, I grew up with this get you God. If you didn't do right, you didn't do what your mama said or your daddy said, God's going to get you. And, you know, I figured he done put my name on the top. I was going to be on the front row of hell I, because I done done everything they told me not to do. And God was going to get me when I drew my last breath, but he wasn't going to keep me. But their God was one that all you had to do was tell him what you wanted, what you needed, and he gave it to you. And uh, man, I like that. That was wonderful. And they taught me how to pray believing that I would receive whatever I had prayed for. That was great. I didn't think God even really cared anything about me. But they did tell me that uh, conditionally God did love me. And I'll tell you about the condition part. I decided after going there for a while, I wanted to be a member of this church. I wanted to join up with these folks. It was something different, something new, and I liked it. And I wanted to be a part of them. So they, there was this girl in the group that I told you about. Her name was Patsy, and I consider her to be my very first spiritual sponsor. She's the one that took me by the hand and led the way. And so I told Patsy I wanted to join this church, and she said, well, you'll have to go talk to the pastor. And uh, so I did. She took me, and we went and talked to him, and he said, well, I'll tell you, young lady, uh, if you want to be a member of this church, you can't wear all that jewelry. You can't wear anything but a watch and a wedding band. I said, well, I'm not married. He says, then you can wear a watch. Well, I thought about that a few minutes, not very long, very few. And you know, by looking at me today, and I'm toned down somewhat today. <laughs> I didn't know how West Virginia might receive all of my flash and trash. But I am pure flash and trash from the very inside out. The gaudier the better. The flashier the better. The trashier the better. It doesn't really matter. But I like it. And it's okay. I can wear it. And I decided that that was just asking too darn much. <laughs> and I said, thank you, but no thank you, I'm out of here. And so I left, and I never joined the Pentecostal Church. I understand today they do look on that uh, 
more lightly and they will let a little bit of flash and trash in there, but I don't think it's a whole lot even yet. But I hadn't gone back to sea. But I went on my merry way. I still went to church there and I still maintained friendship with all these people that I had met, this younger group of people. And then they began to pair up and get off, go off and get married. Well, I didn't want to be left by myself, you know, hanging out here. And so I said to Patsy one day, well, you know, <clears throat> I, I believe I'd like to get married. She looked at me and she said, well, God's going to have to clean you up first. <laughs> I didn't think that was very nice, but I figured she's closer to God than I was, and I better listen. So I did. So I went on. Several months later, I brought it up again, and she says, well, I'll tell you what you do. She said, you pray, and you ask God to give you a husband. But now when you pray, you pray specifically for what you want in a husband. Well, okay. Now, I did not have a good relationship with my father. I told you that. Didn't have a brother. <clears throat> Done told you about the first husband, what happened to him. Now, what did I know about what I wanted or needed in a husband? Big zero. Nothing. I didn't even know what to ask for. But I was not going to tell Patsy that. Because God knows what she would have come up with. <laughs> So, in my desperation, I did what I always do. I said, okay, God, I'll tell you what you do. You know, I didn't know I wasn't supposed to tell God what to do at that time. So, I told him, here's what you do, God. You give me the husband that you think is right for me. That fellow back there snickering, I already knows. He knows what I'm going to say next. I live to regret that prayer. <laughs> oh, boy. I had a job as, <clears throat> as a buyer for this large company in Memphis. And uh, so one of my jobs was to uh, review uh, product lines that salesmen brought through my office or brought into my office. So... <clears throat> I went to church, I went to work, and I went home. That's the only three places I ever was. And so, you know, I didn't have any choice but to look for potential husband candidates in that line of men that came through my office every day. So I'd go to work every day, sit behind that desk, and I wasn't really looking at the merchandise, but I was looking at the potential possible husband benefit that might be in that fellow that brought that stuff in my office. Now, there were some that came in that wasn't half bad. There's others came in. I said, thank you, but no, thank you, God. Don't believe that's him. <laughs> and then one day, this fellow walked in my office, and my God, I was almost struck, just starstruck. <clears throat> didn't know who he was, never heard of him, didn't know a thing about him, but he walked in my office, and girls, I got to tell you, I was, I mean, I was hooked. Because you see, he had these big, broad shoulders, a little bitty skinny waist, and a little teeny butt. <laughs> And better than that, he had this ring on his finger that just sparkled. And, I, you know, I am attracted to sparkles. <laughs> Especially when they're coming from diamonds. And it was just a gorgeous ring on his finger. And I talked to him, found out we had a lot in common, and I was even more attracted. And I decided he was a pretty good candidate. Didn't know too much else about him, but, you know, that's enough of me. So the next week, I <clears throat> pretended that I had a business matter to discuss with him. 
And I called him up in his office in Mississippi, and they said, he's not here. I said, well, where is he? They said, well, he's gone to the coast. Well, what for? They said, he's on his honeymoon. Well, I'm going to tell you, I, you know, when you know that you know that you know something, and I just knew that guy was the right guy. I really did. And I was devastated when they told me that, just devastated. It took me a day or two to recover. But I went back to the business at hand, and that was reviewing the parade of salesmen that came to my office to see who might be the next best potential husband candidate. And nobody else really seemed to fit the bill about it. And then I guess I just forgot about it for a while. I really wasn't too interested anymore. And about a year later, May the 10th, as a matter of fact, 1983, that same man that had been on the coast on his honeymoon called me and asked me to have a drink with him that afternoon. Now, I know you're sitting there wondering, well, what was his wife with him? Well, I didn't know. I didn't ask him. <laughs> didn't really care. But I went to meet him for a drink that afternoon. And, you know, when I got here and started to hearing alcoholics talk and reading my own, my husband's big book, I found out something. When you want something, you got to be willing to go to any length to get it. And I was. I got stone sloppy drunk with him that night. We both got just snockered, and I took him home with me, and he ain't left since. And now I want you to meet Mr. Wonderful, Larry G. And it was downhill all the way from there now. <laughs> Whoa. It didn't take me long to realize this fella didn't know when to stop drinking. He drank all the time. And I got a little bit bothered about that. <clears throat> and I tried to talk to him about it. Even called his brothers and said, do you think he might be an alcoholic? I had no idea what an alcoholic was. But I'd heard the word, seemed to fit the bill, so I thought, well, maybe that's what he is. They said, we don't know, honey, but if he is, he's your problem. <laughs> well, that, I didn't think that was nice. I didn't. I had a resentment against them for <clears throat> ten years over that. Thank you, Seth. So I tried to talk to this man about his drinking, and talking didn't seem to work. And so I tried a little bit stronger persuasive uh, reasoning with him. That didn't work either. I tried yelling a little bit. That didn't work either. And one thing about him, you know, if this man, I guess if he got drunk today, God permit that he doesn't, but if he got drunk today and went out there on that street in a car, I'll promise you there would be a cop right behind him before he got one block down the street. And that cop would pull him over and take him to jail and then call me. I mean, it was a routine. It was a pattern. And, you know, and I, I really wouldn't have minded too much his drinking. But the crap he could get into when he drank bothered me. 
It really bothered me. Not to say all the money that went down the tube for bail bondsmen, lawyers, court fees. I mean, you name it. And my God, I wish I had the money today that we've spent on all that stuff. I could really be some flash and trash. I'm going to tell you. <laughs> I mean, I could do it big time. But that really got my goat because I've always been a penny pincher more or less. And that just got my goat when he would just go out and do those kinds of things. Well, he almost lost his car and being the good wife that I, well, I don't even think I was a wife at that time. I think I was just a significant other, as they call them today. But being the good Al-Anon person that I was, candidate, <clears throat> I go down to the bank and get that car transferred over into my name so I can get insurance on it. And then I got him, buddy, right there. So I did that, and I said, oh, I got him now. I go home, and I say, now, this car is in my name, and if you drive it while you drink, you realize what a terrible predicament financially that you will put me into. Oh, yes. So I'll make a deal with you. You cannot drink and drive this car. Okay? Oh, I promise you I won't do that. <laughs> and that lasted all the 15 minutes. And so he would, you know, I mean, it was just routine. Every day I knew that he was going to get drunk. I, I mean, I just knew when he came home that night, somewhere along the way, he'd stumbled over a bottle of liquor somewhere. Because he was going to come home that night <laughs> drinking. So I... <clears throat> I just got a little bit tired of that. He wouldn't listen, and he, you know, he just wouldn't listen to me. So I decided the best thing to do would just be take that car away from me. Well, he's bigger than I am, or was at that time. I don't think he's bigger than I am now. <laughs> but that time, he was bigger, bigger than me. So I called up a friend of mine, and I said, I tell you what, I'm going to come by your house in a minute. I want you to get in your car and follow me. She said, where are we going? I said, it don't matter, but you just follow me. She said, okay. So he came home. And did his usual thing. And when he came in the back door, uh, he would always come in with his little Burger King sack in his hand. Because he would have stopped by Burger King and got him a little sandwich. And when he comes home, he sits on the sofa, eats his little sandwich and passes out. <clears throat> Such a wonderful life we had. <laughs> so when he passed out, I got his car keys out of his pocket and I went and jumped in that old beat up blue car he'll tell you about tonight and I go get my girlfriend and she follows me and we go way on the other side of Memphis that's a long way across Memphis it's a big town and I put it I hid it in somebody's yard I don't even know who they are and I couldn't get there today if I had to and I got in the car with her and she took me back home well the next day he got up and he said where's my car and I said it's gone well where's it at I said I hid it he said, you can't do that. I've got this very important appointment today that I've got to make. I've got an appointment, a sales appointment at 11 o'clock or whatever time it was, and I've got to have my car. And he'd keep on talking as he is so masterful at and talk me out of that car. But I'd make him promise every time. I'd make him swear, you will not drink and drive if we go get this car. Oh, I promise. And every time... 
same old thing over and over again. And I hate to tell you how many times we did that I did this, thinking this time it'll work, this time it'll be different. And it never did. I knew if he wasn't home by 7 o'clock at night, one of three places had him. The morgue, the jail, or the hospital. The last, the first one never called. The last two did. But seven o'clock was the magic hour at our house. <clears throat> and I couldn't wait to get home. I lived all the two miles from work and I could not wait to get home to sit in my chair and just worry. Where is he? What's he doing? I knew where he was. I knew what he was doing. I may not know the exact location, but it was never any different. And, and I would sit there and work up a resentment and I'd say, God, just please don't let him get killed. Just don't let him kill anybody else. And I'd pray every day. And then when I heard that back door rattle, it was like just anger went all over me. And I would just be so mad that he even lived to get home. So many times I wished he'd just get, just get dead somewhere without hurting anybody else. That was the only thing. I was afraid that that car was going to hurt somebody else. And I'd already told you it's in my name. So guess who they're going to get? <clears throat> so I didn't want it to affect me. But I just wanted him dead. I wanted him anything. Just out of here. But it, I could not stand, you know, just this constant turmoil. And it finally began to affect me physically to the point that I was vomiting pure blood and had psoriasis from my elbows to my wrists on both arms and all in my hair. It was the oozy, doozy kind of stuff. You know, you had to wash your hair every day and it was horrible. And the doctor told me that if I didn't do something about the stress in my life that I would be dead in less than a year. She told me that in August of 1985. <clears throat> now, my alcoholic was one of those that, <clears throat> as I told you, always got in the car and always got caught. One night he called me. It was after the magic hour of 7 o'clock. He called me and he said he was in Hernando. And I said, well, what are you doing in Hernando? That's about 25 miles from us. He said, I'm in jail. I said, well, why are you in jail? He said, damn if I know. <laughs> now, I'm going to tell you what's so sad about that. As far as is how I felt. You see, I wanted my husband to be well. I wanted him not to drink. I wanted him to be successful, and I wanted to believe everything he ever told me, and I did. And then when all of the promises were broken, and your heart's broken half in two, and you're so angry because you believed yet another lie, I was never really angry at him because he lied to me. I was angry at me because I believed it one more time. And when he told me that night that he didn't know why he was in jail, my head told me he's in jail because he's drinking. But my heart said, well, maybe not, Peggy. Maybe maybe they've just got him for some other reason. You better go see about him. And so I got a friend, and we went down there. And when I got down there to get my, he was driving my car, so I'd bail my car out. And when I asked him, why they had him in jail. 
They said, we've got him on a DUI. And my heart just broke. I thought, how can he do this? How can he do this to me? Everything that man did in his drinking, I took it as personal, very personal. It was direct, he directed every bit of it toward me. One of the funnier incidents I'll have to tell you about, wasn't funny at the time, but it is today. He came in one night with his little Burger King sack and Whatever you do, don't you serve my lunch or my dinner tonight. No Burger King sack, I tell you that. I'll have a pink-legged resentment, and I'll tell you what that is after a while. But anyway, he came waltzing in with his little Burger King sack, and he walked up by, he had to go by my chair to get to his sofa. And I'd gotten a haircut that day, and it was mighty short, I'm here to tell you. I mean mighty short. And he took one look at me, and he said, well, if I'd have been going to marry a goddamn man, I'd have married one. <laughs> and I started seething. He went on over to the sofa, and he sat down, and he turned around and looked at me again, and he said, besides that, your clothes are ugly. <laughs> he had no one said that. <laughs> Because the next day, the very next day, I didn't go home and worry about him from 5 o'clock to whatever time he got in. I went to Goldsmith's, and that was a nice department store there at the time. And I charged me $500 worth of new clothes. <laughs> Took me five damn years to pay for them, but by God, I got even. He ain't never said anything else about my clothes. <laughs> and today I buy them when I want to. As many as I want to. Or that I can pay for. Let me put that right. <clears throat> In May of 1990, 1986, was Memorial Day weekend. And I had been through some very, very stressful times physically. And I was, we were going to my mother's for the weekend. That was about two and a half hours away. And he was supposed to be home when I got there at five o'clock. And I'm sure he had all the good intentions to be there, but he didn't show up at five o'clock. And I figured I'd had enough of this. So I got in my car. I remember packing a, a little bag on the side of my bed that afternoon on a Friday afternoon. The next thing I remember, I walked in my mother's front door at 9.15 that night. Now, where I'd been for four hours and 15 minutes, I have no idea. I could not tell you to this day how I got there other than my car was there, so I know I must have drove it. But as to know which way I went, if I stopped along the way, what happened, I do not know. I have no recollection of that. And I understand today, I've heard people talk about emotional blackouts, and I think that must have been what I had that day, because I have no recollection of it. But it scared me. So the next day, I had a friend that I'd gone to school with, and I went to see Rita, told her what I'd been living with, and for the first time in my life, I was totally honest about where I was and what was going on in my home, because you see, I had been a master at masquerading. I'd masqueraded all of my feelings around my family and around my friends, um, 
so that they wouldn't know what was going on. And I was totally honest with Rita that day, and she had lived with an alcoholic for 21 years and got a divorce and never found Eleanor. But she told me that day, she said, Peggy, I hate to tell you this, but you look like a pile of shit. She was so nice to me. <laughs> this is the end of side one. Stop the recorder now and turn the tape over. These people always just seem to just come right out and tell it like it is, you know. But she did tell me then, and she said, you know, I wish I could offer you some hope, but I can't offer you any. Best thing you do is get your stuff and get out of there. And you know, I, now here I had been single for 16 years before I ever married Larry. And I had taken care of myself, had a good job, had my own home, my own car. And you know, not one time during the time I lived with his active alcoholism did I ever think that I could leave. Never occurred to me. Never. I promise. Never occurred to me. That's the first thing I tell them now. And I see them sick little things come in there and want to take all that abuse. I say, well, honey, you can leave. But it just didn't occur to me. But when she told me that, it was like, yeah, I can leave. I had an aunt in California I was really fond of. She told me any time I needed a place to go or money to get there to call her. So I knew I had, I knew where I was going. There was a clock on Rita's wall about so big around. I said, I looked up to see what time it was and it was seven o'clock and those boulders just had, had just rolled off of my shoulders because I was free. I knew I was out of there. I was history. I didn't know what that sucker was going to do, but I knew it wasn't going to be with me because I was gone. So I told my family the next day, and they were somewhat surprised to know what I had been living with because I didn't go around them much when, when all this was going on. And uh, maybe they knew more than they let on, but they acted like they didn't know a thing about what was really going on in my life. They didn't act like they really cared what I did. They were supportive in that they said, well, if that's what you've got to do, go for it. So I went back to Memphis that Sunday night, and I wasn't going to tell him because, you know, this man I was living with had a silver tongue in his mouth. I mean, it he could just talk me into or out of anything he wanted to. And I knew if I let him know what I was going to do, he talked me out of it. And I wasn't going to let it happen because I knew for me I had to do this because I was the one that was dying. And I had to get out of there. So I got to the door that night. His car wasn't at home, and I didn't find that unusual, but I went to the door and set my bags down to open it, and he opened the door for me. And I looked at him, and I said, where's your car? And he said, we've got to talk about that. <laughs> well, you know that old, I mean, you know, there's just certain things that will just hit you in the gut and just, I mean, you know, it just, as they call it, gut punching. He gut punched me that night with that because I knew it was bad. It couldn't be good. But I really didn't want to hear it because God had done for me what I'd never been able to do for myself in that I was able to detach or he had detached me in my little red wagon from that alcoholic. And he told me what had happened. He'll tell you about it tonight. But he told me about what had happened and I just, and he told me he thought he needed some help. And I said, Larry, the phone book's full of people that can help you, but I can't help you. I went to bed went, and went to sleep and got up the next morning and went to work. And he called me at work and told me that there's these people coming over from a treatment center and they wanted me to come home. And I thought, well, all the more better that is because if he's gone, 
you know, he ain't going to know when I leave. And I'll have about a week's jump on him. So <clears throat> I went home that afternoon. These people came and they took him away and they asked me to come over the next day and they really didn't say what for, but I assumed it was to make financial arrangements and I figured that's the one last thing I could do to be rid of him. Some And I had the best night's sleep that night I'd had in a long time because I knew where he was. He wasn't going to come home drunk and there wasn't anybody going to call me and tell me, you know, that he was dead or in the hospital or I wouldn't have to get up and make one of those middle of the night runs. So I got up the next day and I started over to this place which was about 70 miles away. And I don't know what happened. <laughs> but somewhere between home and that treatment center that morning, I got a pink-legged resentment. And when I got there, well, it wasn't a pretty picture. Well, I'm going to tell you what a pink-legged resentment is. I know y'all sitting out there wondering. Pink-legged resentment is when you get a case of the red ass and it's so red it just spills over on your leg. <laughs> runs down your leg. That's a pretty bad resentment. And I had a pretty bad resentment when I got there that Tuesday morning. Or that, yeah, it was on Tuesday morning. I was so angry and it was boiling out of me like a volcano. And when I got there, I, I decided that, no, you ain't doing this no more. You're not going to do me this way again. You're not going to lie to these people. You're not going to lie to me anymore. I'm going to get you right where you need to be got this morning. And I walked in there and I asked for the administrator of that hospital. And they brought me this fellow dressed in a nice three-piece suit. And I assumed it would be the administrator. Could have been his janitor. I have no idea. Don't care. And really don't want to know and hope I never see him again because I sure owe him an amend. I can you that. But I mean, I let that man have it. I told him what he had, what he needed to do with it. And that somebody's going to have to do something. And it was his job to do it and not to let him out of there until he did it. I don't even know what all I told him. But at any rate, I let him have it. And then I asked for the financial man, and I read him the right act. And then I asked for somebody else. I, there was three of them that morning or that day that I got. And they all sit and listen to me patiently. And at 6 o'clock that afternoon, I ended up in a counselor's office downstairs in the basement. <laughs> and that counselor told me two things that day that would save my life. And the first one was, he said... Peggy, if Larry came home from work, or if you came home from work one day, and Larry was sitting in the recliner chair, and he had a gun in his lap, but he didn't have any bullets for it, and he asked you to go to the store and get bullets, would you do that? And I said, certainly not. And he said, well, young lady, I hate to tell you this, but that's, in essence, what you've been doing all this time. Every time that you've ever paid the bills, every time that you've ever picked up the hot checks, every time you've ever bailed him out of jail, every time you've ever done for Larry what Larry should have been doing for himself, you've loaded another bullet in the gun. And that got my attention. And for the first time, I realized the part that I played in the whole sick scenario in our lives. And the hair stood up on the back of my neck. To think that I had been the one who said that I loved him so. But yet had been the one who was helped 
willing to help him take his own life. It's pretty scary. The other thing Larry told me was I needed to go to Alana. And I said, what's that? He said, well, that I, well, I don't know what he said now. I'm not going to stand up here and lie to you because I don't know what he said, but I'll tell you what I heard him say. He said, Larry's going to be going to some meetings when he gets out of here, and they've got meetings for you in, in the same place they have meetings for him, and you need to go to make sure he goes. <laughs> and so on June 9th, 1986, Larry and I both walked into our first meetings together. And I don't know for six months what you ladies and men had to say to me in those Al-Anon rooms because I was too interested in what was going on down the hall or what might be going out the door down the hall. <clears throat> and I was so very preoccupied with everything that he did. You see, I was still focused on him. And you probably told me I was sick, but I didn't hear that either because I was too interested in what was going on. And when you said amen after the Lord's Prayer, I didn't stay around and get a chance to know you, nor did I let you know me. Because I had to get down the hall and make sure he was still there. And he hadn't slipped out somewhere and got drunk. And I went on with this for a long time. Probably six or eight months before I ever started hearing what you had to tell me. And that was that I had to put the focus on myself. That his recovery was up to him and his friends in AA. That I could do nothing about it but that I had to focus on me. And I didn't like that. I didn't like looking at me. But y'all told me I need to get a sponsor. And I said, I asked the lady one night at Aftercare, that's at Shoney's in our, where we live. <laughs> and I asked this lady, I said, well, how do I get a sponsor? And she said, well, honey, I'll tell you. Here's how you do it. You go up to someone that you admire and you ask them. <clears throat> If they work the fourth and fifth step, and if they tell you no, you move on. Now, UAAs may find that strange, but I'm sure these Alanons probably don't. And there was three gurus in that group that I was going to that I considered to be my home group. And they'd been there longer than God. And so I asked each and every one of them if, if they had worked the fourth and fifth step, and every one of them told me no. That they did not find it necessary to do so. I was devastated, but I moved on. I like that lady told me. Until one night, this little lady walked in there, a little bit short lady, about like that. And she walked in those doors, and she... I, I was desperate by this time, you know, to think that I'd been around here this long and couldn't get a sponsor. And I asked her if she'd worked a fourth and a fifth step, and she said, yes, I have. And I said, good, will you be my sponsor? And she said, I sure will. I still have that sponsor today. Her name's Doris W. And Doris, along with another lady there, helped me through the fourth step and the fifth step and the remainder of my steps. And I kept going to Eleanor's. I went to a meeting every night. And after a while, it got to be less important to me whether he went or whether he stayed. But you became very important to me. And I began to learn things like live and let live. Let go and let God. I love that one. And my life began to change. My focus began to change. Everything around me began to change. 
and I have to share with you some one of the amends that I had to make. <clears throat> Not that it's more important, but it uh, certainly is very important in my life. My sponsor is a very wise woman, and she told me that I was going to have to go back to this daddy that I hated, and that I was going to have to treat him like I wanted him to treat me all those years. That what I expected of him, I was going to have to give to him. And I didn't like that. I didn't want to do it. And it was very hard for me at first to do that. But I went back to that man and I started little by little just uh, giving him a quick hug. And over a period of years, it got to where he would get up and hug me. Or the, at least the last time I saw him, he got up and hugged me without me having to take the initiative. In 90, October of 93, I just bought a new car, and <clears throat> I had an aunt and uncle that were visiting them, and I just took the day off in the middle of the week, which I never, ever had done. On a Thursday, I took the day off and went down and, and, and visited with my father and mother and my aunt and uncle, and, and daddy wanted to go for a ride in my new car. That's what we did. We rode around for about three hours that afternoon, down roads I had never been down, couldn't find if I had to today. He took me places I'd never been. He thought, you know, he talked to me about a lot of things. Told me I'd spent too much money for that call. <laughs> Still being a daddy, I guess, huh? But we had a great day. I took him back home and I went back to Memphis to go to work the next day. And two weeks later, on November the 1st, 93, <clears throat> Larry came to my office to tell me that my daddy had dropped dead with a massive heart attack. And I'm going to tell you, I've never had anything to <clears throat> shock me as bad as that did. Because you see, my daddy wasn't sick. And I didn't expect it. But I am so grateful that my sponsor made me do or asked, told me to do and that I followed instructions for once in my life about those amends. And I knew that I had one last amend to make to him. And so we went home and I went to the funeral home to the boys that uh, had the funeral home. I had gone to school with them. And I explained to them that I need some time alone with my dad. And uh, they shut the doors and allowed me to do that. But I told Daddy that day as he lay there stone cold in the corpse, I said, Daddy, well, I reached down and kissed him first. That was the first and only time I ever kissed him in my life. But I said, Daddy, I am so sorry that I was not able to accept the love that you tried to give me all these years. And I know that you did the very best you could do because you taught me that. He'd been the very best parent he could be. And I want you to know that I'm sorry that I was not able to see that all these years. And I want you to know that I love you. And I appreciate what you did for me. Because my daddy was a very good man. Now I ask you, what greater love can a man give his daughter than to work two jobs so my mom didn't have to work and she could stay home and take care of us? 
what greater love could a man give his daughter when that's something he never, ever had? Because you see, my father's father was an alcoholic. A very abusive alcoholic. My father spent many a night in a cotton field protecting my grandmother because of the beatings that she would endure from my grandfather. He had no stability in his home. He had no security in his home. And that's all he was trying to give me. And I couldn't see it. So today, somewhere, in spite of the fact that he never ever said, I'm proud of you, and that's really all I ever wanted to hear out of him. And in spite of the fact that I never heard it from him someday, today I know he's looking down from somewhere saying, go get him, girl, I'm proud of you. And I'm okay with it today. We have a little grandson with us this weekend that's 14 years old that has very special problems. He's an ADHD child, and he's had a hard life. In July of 1993, we went to Evansville, Indiana. Larry and I did to one of these kinds of things. And when we got back home, my daughter had been trying to reach us all weekend because Joshie had been kidnapped by the people that were supposed to be helping him. And uh, the kids didn't have any money. They knew who had him but didn't know where he was. It became necessary for them to get a lawyer. <clears throat> and the retaining fee for this lawyer was $5,000. And so I decided that I would come up with that. It was not something that I was uh, required to do or made, feel, made uh, to feel guilty about, but it was something that I wanted to do because I wanted this child to have a chance. And um, I guess part of it might have been guilt because of what I did to Angie. I never thought about that, but it could have been. I don't know, but, but my response was that was to come up with the money, which I did. Took it to Little Rock, and this attorney gave us absolutely no hope of getting him back because they were scheduled to have the second of three adoption hearings on a Friday. And <clears throat> now they had manipulated the legal system, and that's just a whole other story that I can't even, don't even have time to go into today. But at any rate, we um, he told us to appear in court and that the best thing we could do was to let this judge know that this child did indeed have a family that loved him. But beyond that, we had no hope of taking him back that day, only to let this judge know we were there and that she might possibly postpone this hearing. And I knew if those people got out of that courtroom with him that day, that we would never see him again. I just knew that. It, I knew it in my gut. It's just one of those things that I knew, and I wasn't gonna, didn't want to have to take that chance. And then I was reminded by people like you that I am not God, and that I do not know what's best for myself, let alone someone else, my alcoholic, my grandson, or anybody else, and that I would have to. Pray for God's will in my life and in Joshua's life. And I'm going to tell you, that's a hard pill to swallow. But there again, I knew that your judgment 
was best and that you were wiser than me in that area. So I went to the bathroom and did what I always do when I'm my back's to the wall. Plus, I called all these wonderful new friends that I had now, AA and Al-Anon's all over this country, and asked them to pray. And I prayed. But this time, rather than tell God what he needed to do, I went in and I said, Your will, not mine, God. I don't know what's best for Joshi. I don't want to lose him. But if you think that's what's best for Joshi, let it be. We went into that courtroom that day and the judge did something that I understand judges don't do. And that is she overturned her own ruling. And we walked out of that courtroom that Friday with Joshua in tow. And when we got back to the hotel where we were staying, we were, he and I were sitting on the sofa and he looked up at me and he's 10 years old now at that time. He looked up at me and he said, Grandma, I didn't think I'd ever see you again. And it don't get no better than that. It just don't. And he was with us last night at the meeting and he heard Sterling say something that impressed him. He heard Sterling say, it's okay to be different. Thank you, Sterling. Because you see, he's, he is different. And people are constantly, including his grandmother, trying to put him in this little box and making what we think he ought to be. And he heard Sterling say it was okay to be different. He liked that. He may end up with us all someday. We'll save him a seat. We don't know. He's so far isn't into drugs, but he certainly seems to have a personality that's consistent with uh, some of us in here. <laughs> but those are just some of the benefits that this program has given us, given me. And I'm so grateful for it. I really am. Larry and I have a beautiful home, you know. We he owed IRS much money when we got here. I, Lord, I thought we'd never see the end of that. But you know, he managed to get the thing paid off, and we got a little bit of money ahead, and we've got a beautiful home in Horn Lake, Mississippi. And any time you're in that area, we're in the phone book, and we invite you to come by and have a cup of coffee. You got to put up with this little dog. I gave up the woolly booger and got this little dog. <laughs> And he's a big part of my life, I'm going to tell you. And it's tough to be away from him for a week. And we're going to be gone a week this time. We're taking Joshie on a special trip just for him uh, in conjunction with this weekend. And so, you know, life is just uh, its just wonderful. It really is just wonderful. And, and we're just so glad to be a part of it. You know, I've often said and tell my sponsees that, you know, you're very special. We're all very special. We've been hand-picked and hand-chosen in this room. You know, there's a world of people out there that probably need to be here. But they're not here. You are. And I am. And I know that's because I'm special. I've been hand-picked, hand-chosen by the God of my understanding. And that God today is just a, it's a bitsy, teeny-weeny part. Of that God I grew up with. And just It's a bitsy, teensy-weeny part of that God I found in that uh, Pentecostal church. And a whole bunch of the loving, accepting God 
that I found in Eleanor. And so it's completely, totally changed for me. The concept of God I have today. And it's just been a wonderful experience being here. Before I leave you, I want to tell you this. When you take a man's money, all you take is his money. But when you take a man's time, you've taken part of his life. Thank you for part of your life. God bless you. I love you.